Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and this week joining me for the first time in quite a while through the miracle of satellite technology, it's the man you all know, it's him you've listened to the show before, like nine months ago, Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, I'm, yes, I'm like back in everything. I survived like nine months on the other side of the world, just about, and uh, it feels nice to be back here but weird being the person who's not the doing the introductions that's strange (laughs) yes i have taken control Mm, yeah there was a you kind of uh, there was a power vacuum (laughs) you filled it like stalin and the politburo you and trotsky made the same mistake of going to mexico (laughs) yeah yeah we like to keep our references current and (laughs) (laughs) with uh you know stalin and trotsky and that but yeah i'm back um to be slightly less informed than i was before i left because i've (laughs) i've now had nine months out of the out of the film watching game and the television watching game so i'm going to be desperately trying to play catch up and you know you're going to ask me for my expert opinion i'll be like "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm So, yeah, so, I mean, if you just fill everyone in, what have you? What were you up to for, for nine months? I tried to keep people informed upon your whereabouts over the over the nine months, but because the show was recorded reasonably infrequently, uh, mm. sometimes I wasn't entirely accurate in where you were at any given moment. Yeah, well, I, I like to keep on the move to avoid the authorities, mm-hmm. um, but it, the, the, the trip kind of started in Argentina and uh, kind of went all the way down to the very tip of the the end of the world, to Tierra del Fuego, mm-hmm. far south as you can go without being in Antarctica. Then kind of doubled back up, went through Chile, uh, lived in Bolivia for a bit, learned some Spanish uh, for like six weeks. That was pretty cool. Then went to Peru, went to Ecuador, um, went to Colombia. But then we flew to the US and then we did kind of like the southern states all the way across to California, drove up the coast, from LA all the way up to Vancouver, and then we oh that's no that's nonsense. We didn't drive to Vancouver. We drove all the way around California. Then we flew uh, to like Portland, Seattle, Vancouver. Then flew across the country to Washington and did the 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 East Coast. And then we ended up in like Montreal, then Toronto. And it was a, a jolly old trip. There was a lot to squeeze in in nine months. And I've been back for I think. 25 days mm. and already that trip feels like 10 years ago it's kind of weird to like you when you you come back and you speak to people and mm. they're like oh how was it and you're like well, yeah it was obviously it was all right um <laughs> but then like for them that's the end of the story it's like asking someone about the holiday and then like oh you're like oh okay i mean i don't expect to be like go on parkinson um all i did was go on a long holiday but like for me it was like it was a big deal you know but like now it just feels like a distant memory I might have to go away again. <laughs> Do you still feel, because I think, because you and I uh, met up a, a week ago when I was back in the UK, or two weeks ago now, when I was mm-hmm. back in the UK, and um, at the time you said that basically you just constantly feel like you need to be moving somewhere. Uh, do you kind of still feel like that? Like you still feel like you need to be catching a train or a plane somewhere? Yeah, it's weird. If you go away for like a couple of weeks or something on a holiday, you you feel like it's kind of non-stop you're moving trying to squeeze as much in but like mm. when you're kind of traveling about the place the longest we kind of stayed somewhere was like maybe six or seven days apart from, with the exception of when we stopped to like learn spanish yeah so after a week of being home i kind of almost felt like 
shit, we better look for a hostel in the next place we're going to and, you know, pack a bag and, you know, get out of here and kind of, you know, get on a 136-hour bus journey or wherever <laughs> it was to go somewhere. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's weird to be in one place and not have to move. But the slipping back into the old routine of, like, work and, and general life has been depressingly easy. Uh, um, and uh, kind of like going back to work and stuff has been really nice because you're kind of seeing your kind of friends and everything and and you know it is lovely to be home uh, yeah. and have some kind of home comforts and stuff but then you think man it doesn't sound like an asshole but like six months ago I was on top of a mountain you know what I mean I was on a, volca- <laughs> I was on a volcano building a snowman or some shit uh, but then inevitably you're just going to be that asshole who's like yeah, well, I was uh, backpacking around Nihuawa. Uh, yeah, a deeply connected to something spiritual. Fuck that shit. I just don't want to be at work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, as I said, I, I went back to the UK for a week to go to the London Podcast Festival, but part of that basically meant travelling, like landing in Manchester, then travelling to go and see my nan, because I hadn't seen her in a long time and she's in her home up there, then going to Sheffield to see you and, and a lot of other people, then back to Manchester, then down to London. And for the, the week that I've been back, every time I wake up, I have this sense of panic. I've been like, shit, am I meant to be getting a train somewhere? And then it kind of subsides over the course of the day. But whenever I'm kind of like sitting around, I kind of feel like I really should be like doing something. I should be going to see, I should be going to see the Bugle live or something. Uh, mm. But but you know those opportunities are not currently available in Orlando, Florida. Uh, and, and besides, the, the city is still trying to pick itself up after being battered by gale force winds. So it's like it's not. It feels like uh, this is the right place to be to kind of just kind of relax and acclimatize myself back to to normal life, whilst also being surrounded by debris everywhere. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. Um, it, and it, you're kind of uh, like safe and relatively untouched where you are, but I, I mm. gather there was people kind of further out who uh, who got it a little harder. Uh, yeah, like my parents uh, lost power for about a week, but they had lots of supplies, so they were okay, and and with, they were still fairly inland, so they weren't they weren't too badly affected by it. But down on the the coast, like Tampa, any anywhere that had. Uh, a coast was uh, hit or a port was hit pretty badly by the storm. So I, I can't really complain about the fact there's lots of fronds everywhere. Mm, okay. Is Disneyland okay though? Disneyland is back up and running. You can't stop Disneyland. They were only closed for like two days. Right. Okay. okay. They dusted off They dusted off their giant costumes and got back to work. Got back mm. to capering. <laughs> yeah, they can't stop the capering. Yeah, but... Um, no, uh, the the London Podcast Festival also was like super cool. I had a really great time there. I saw a lot of really good shows. Uh, also saw the Empire Podcast, which made mm-hmm. me feel really good about what we do. <laughs> uh, in what uh, sense? In the sense that their discussions are not the most detailed or thoughtful. Uh, or, or Holy shit, are, are we detailed and thoughtful? In comparison, I'd say. Oh, yeah. wow. wow. I mean, okay. like... I mean, to, to say that, like, an Empire product is kind of superficial and obsessed with Joss Whedon is perhaps not the, the hottest of takes. Yeah, that's fairly shocking revelation. Yeah, it, there was definitely a sense of, like, of of sitting there watching it. They, 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 the, the podcast started with an interview with Mark Strong and your bet noir, your, one of your many bet noirs, mm. uh, Matthew Vaughan. Um, yeah. We've got so many grudges on this show, it's hard to keep <laughs> track of them. Um, it's, it's about time to fire up our beefs again. <laughs> yeah we've had nine months of just not being able to just shit on michael bay um mm. but then again like america shit on him by not going to see his latest transformers movie so i think we're we're 
allows a little bit of a breather. But um, yeah, so and that was that was good. Like the actual in in even though it was kind of kind of junkety in that they were just kind of like talking about the Kingsman too and how they're really excited about working on it and and all this sort of the, the kind of very facile answers that you would say if you were in just a press junket or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then like the discussion itself was between like a bunch of of the Empire writers and it was just very slow and not particularly insightful but so like i walked away from that thinking like well they get more listeners than us but we we put out a higher quality of product so. yeah the the caliber of uh, guests they get on is pretty high um <laughs> but like you know according to you and i'm you know just in case any empire people are listening i'm not the one who just said you did an undynamic uninformative shallow podcast that was ed davis and you can find him at 6942 orlando street orlando Next, it's just 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 past disneyland i believe yeah it's pretty close it's where they filmed the florida project mm-hmm. what is it i've seen people loads of people talking about the florida project what is that it's the new movie by sean baker who did tangerine Ah, uh, oh, that guy yeah, and it's all set in. Well, I don't know if it's all set, but like it, it mostly takes place in like a motel in Orlando, within kind of spitting distance of Disneyland, and it's all about the people who live there. And apparently, Willem Dafoe gives a tour de force performance as an actually very nice man, <laughs> oh, okay. kind of breaking from twenty years of of precedent. Um, mm. But yeah, uh, so yeah, that's a movie that everyone is talking about as being one of the best of the year. Uh, so mm. I'm very excited for it, but. It, I haven't mm. had a chance to see it yet. I'm sure it will be very, very big when it eventually hits Florida yeah. and hits the uh, the Enzian Theatre in Orlando. Mm. But it, it, this is just another prime example of how out of touch I am currently <laughs> um, with the film world. I did manage to keep my, my kind of at least one finger in a pie by trying to see some stuff whilst I was away. But being in kind of Latin America and, and for most of the part being... Um, completely clueless with Spanish, and then for the second half of the trip, being just slightly more clued up. I mean, I could I can speak Spanish like mm. kind of slowly and in the present tense. Some things I can understand, um, but not maybe not enough to see a movie in. But like, um, we, there was some uh, cinemas that, especially in like uh, Sucre in Bolivia, where we where we studied Spanish. It's a big university town, and everyone else. Most people who are there are there to learn Spanish because it costs like a dollar an hour or something ridiculous to to learn. Mm. Um, and there was a cinema there that showed uh, like one film a week in English, and we got to see uh, Moonlight there, which was you know really cool. It was it was kind of around the time it was it was up for the Oscar. It's been lovely to learn about other cultures whilst I've been away, and you get very defensive of like, like perhaps generalizations or stereotypes of other kind of cultures and other nationalities. But I tell you what, Bolivians are late for everything, right? <laughs> it is, but like, Bolivianos are, like, the nicest people, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, holy shit, they cannot stay on time. Like, if you get up in the morning, you are just, like, barged out of the way by people running to be on time for things. Mm-hmm. And they never are. Like, we learned Spanish every day for six weeks. Like, the teacher was late and like like offered no apology or anything like this it was like you know it was very un un english and um as soon as like five minutes to go uh of the lesson was was kind of rolling around they'd be like checking their watches and then like on the dot three o'clock they were out of the door not even a goodbye like and um i would say that is fairly well kind of reflected in their cinema practices Mm. because like moonlight went to see it it started like 25 minutes late uh, watch the movie, this kind of really intimate, um, emotional kind of drama, this kind of 
wanted to sit there and kind of think, oh, shit, while the credits are rolling, you have that moment to yourself to kind of think, oh, wow, that was quite a journey I've been on. But, like, literally as soon as it said moonlight on the screen, lights up, door open, film stop, get the fuck out. <laughs> it was like... It was like it was like that was that was how it was like like reflected of of, of the the Bolivian culture of being late. Mm. So you know I'm not I'm not slighting anyone from Bolivia because I love you guys, but like holy shit, would it kill you to start on time? No, you're just starting your uh, your Bolivian chunk for your stand up routine. Mm, yeah, it really, really connects with the uh, well, maybe with Colombian audiences. It's niche, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Bolivian cinema times. What's that about? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, like so, you mentioned uh, Moonlight. Let's let's uh, let's go through some of the big stories that you missed. Let's catch you up. Um, well, well, firstly, Ed, there is okay. something we need to talk about about okay. Moonlight specifically, which <laughs> is when I crossed the border into Bolivia, um, I did so from northern Chile, and I did so on a four by four jeep going through uh, the Saladia Uni, which is a massive salt desert, mm-hmm. um, and it's a it's an absolutely spectacular thing to see. Um, and you will in December, everyone will see it because they filmed uh, some of Star Wars Episode Eight. There, it doubles oh, wow. for the, the the planet crate uh, where you'll see in the trailer with the the things that are dragging the red dust behind them. But they filmed some of that like the year before. Wow! Now, where I went completely out of Wi-Fi and and data whilst I was doing this kind of lovely journey, and when we finally got to this like kind of small town on the other side of the Bolivian border, and everyone kind of got to this restaurant. And they were like, "Hey, there's Wi-Fi." So we all reconnected and was just, "I wonder what's happened in the um, in the preceding five days." I get a message from you saying, "Wow, the Oscars were crazy," (laughs) and I was like, "Dude, I've been like, I've been out of touch. I've been like, you know, bombing around the Bolivian highlands." like at 5,000 meters altitude, feeling sick as a dog. Um, like, I, what could possibly have happened in the Oscars? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you got, the, you got the honor of having to tell me about it. Yeah, because, I mean, this was a unique pleasure for me because the day after the Oscars where, as everyone knows, La La Land was announced as the Best Picture winner and then immediately rescinded when they realized that Warren Beatty had read the wrong name out. Uh, sorry, Faye Dunaway had read the wrong name out after Warren Beatty had kind of uh, shuffled around on stage because he realised they had the wrong card and couldn't figure out what to do mm-hmm. um, because he realised he was about to be in an intensely viral moment um, uh, that the Moonlight was uh, announced the winner. Uh, um, and everyone I knew knew that because all of my people who are, are, are film obsessives knew because it was the, all the things they wanted to talk about, but even people who aren't film obsessives but just kind of dip in around about the time that the Oscars happen. Uh, saw it on the, the entertainment news the next day. So I had no one who I got to tell about that amazing moment. And you gave me the rare gift of being someone who had no idea at what had happened. So I got to relay that to you in a series of WhatsApp messages, uh, just kind of slowly breaking it down. And I believe I even started by saying, believe me when I say everything I'm about to say is true. <laughs> <laughs> because it is when you break it, when you kind of break down what happened with Moonlight, it is really like one of those things where you say, this is an insane thing. If someone told me this completely free of context, I would not believe that they read the wrong name out for mm. the most important moment of the Oscars broadcast. And then everyone had to awkwardly shuffle back on stage while the the Moonlight crew ran up to accept the award. Yeah, yeah. That was quite something because, like, I was kind of thinking, oh, I can't wait to find out what won. But then, yeah, to kind of be faced with that was, you know, and then I had to relay that information to, like, 
the people who were on the four by four with me. So like this, these kind of Serbian guys and this like Swiss couple. And I was just like, Hey guys, you're in the Oscars. Like you'll never guess what happened. And then like this kind of weird disbelief that was kind of spreading around the group. Yeah. That was quite <laughs> something. And I, I still haven't seen it like the actual clip. I just actually want to have it exist as you telling me, because it can't quite be as funny in, in real life as it is in my head. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's more just kind of like awkward and strange. That was the, mm-hmm. That was my experience watching it because uh, I'd been watching the the night and like I was kind of mad about how well La La Land had done because I I'd vacillated between in my opinion of that movie I'd, I'd gone from thinking ah it's all right it's not really for me but it's fine to this is the work of Satan and back <laughs> you know kind of eventually settling on a uh, on a kind of a happy medium of not really caring about it all that much um, but I was kind of like it winning I was just kind of like oh fine why not give it mm-hmm. to that to that to that more pedestrian piece of work uh but then and i was about to turn off the tv when suddenly the the producer from uh for la la land just basically said no there's been a mistake you guys have won and everyone and the, there was that moment where everyone thinks oh that's a nice gesture you know they're saying everyone's winning and then he's literally holding up this card and saying uh no you guys actually won <laughs> uh and so, and then it was just kind of just kind of harried and strange uh definitely it's, it's definitely more fun in retrospect than it was at the time i feel certainly for the people involved who i think all were kind of mortified by it mm, yeah i can imagine it was kind of like there's that 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 urban legend isn't there that marissa tomei won her oscar in for was it my cousin Vinny? like back yes. in the day because jack palance came on and read the wrong name yeah but but i think but, that that proved not to be not to be right yeah, or there is a genuine one which happened, and this is referenced in the book of Five Came Back, but I don't think is in the, the miniseries, that Frank Capra once got up on stage um, to collect a Best Os- best Director Oscar, which someone else had won. But it was because there were two directors named Frank nominated, and right. whoever it was who read out the winner said, hey, come on up, Frank, and they both got up and walked there. And Frank Capra had to walk back to his seat, realising that he hadn't won. Oh man, that's that's got that's got to be tough. You know, yeah. it's not like everyone in your industry that you work with and all your peers are there. Yeah, <laughs> to watch you just kind of like, or or the other one. This is also in Five Came Back. There was one, I think it's the year that Grapes of Wrath won. Maybe they mm-hmm. did this thing which they've never done since because it's a horrible thing to do, where they got all of the nominees for best directors to stand up on stage while they read out the nominees and then their idea was, oh, we're going to hand it to whoever is the winner. Um, which obviously is terrible. But then it went to John Ford, who wasn't there because he was on his boat. <laughs> <laughs> so those four guys just had to stand there on stage yeah. for absolutely no reason. That is, yeah, that's pretty bad. I mean, they could have, because it's done by votes, right? The number of votes they yeah. get, they could have just like made them leave the stage in reverse order. <laughs> so like with the least votes, kind of do it X Factor style. Yeah. yeah, they they definitely could have been crueler. Mm. The, uh, old Hollywood was there was too much decorum. Now yeah. in Trump's America, mm. <laughs> that's how they would do it. Yeah, um, yeah. So so yeah, so Moonlight winning Best Picture was obviously it was a big deal just in and of itself, and it's a shame that it's been overshadowed by the way it happened, including in this in this in this anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But like, you know, it was a, a, a film with a primarily black cast. I don't think there's even a, I mean, there's like one white extra in the cafe at the end. <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's no there's no white characters with uh, speaking parts in that movie uh, which is the first time that's ever happened for a best picture winner uh, mm, i think that given the oscars history it wouldn't have been a surprise for that white extra to get a best actor nod and have <laughs> been completely ignored <laughs> you know what i mean yeah uh, and it was also i mean i think uh, miriam bale the the critic uh, who's a great great follow on twitter particularly for anyone who's into twin peaks uh, she said she described it as being like the first european influenced movie to win best picture which i think was essentially her or, or basically kind of talking about it as a movie that so kind of wore its influence on its uh on its sleeve in terms of like european art cinema or or um one car y movies you mm-hmm. know it is a movie that does not look like best picture best pictures look it doesn't move it doesn't feel the way that best picture movies are went to look which is why it being nominated felt seismic in and of itself, particularly in like the the aftermath of Oscars So White. But it winning was like just this really uh, incredible moment. Mm. I suppose it's like a bit like we talked a couple of years ago about the idea of 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 like the aforementioned Tangerine being nominated for a, mm. an Oscar, and that like it was a it was a very strong film that year, and it had a unique voice. And it would have been really interesting to see that in the mix. I think that was actually the year of Oscars So White, I think. Um, yeah, it would But, have like, been, yeah. you'd think that it is a long shot to be nominated and it wouldn't win. Mm. But Moonlight felt very much like, oh, shit, that got nominated. Uh, that's clearly going to be the one that, you know, that's going to be a quiz question answer um, in 10 years' time. What was the the little indie that got nominated for Best Picture alongside these big hitters? And then, mm. lo and behold, it won. Yeah, it was, it was just a, a really wonderful moment. Uh, and a, I, go on, sorry. Uh, just like in a in a year that had so many terrible things happen, uh, mm. and you know, and in the early days of the Trump administration and everything, where everything was just felt awful and chaotic. I mean, they still do, but mm-hmm. we're all just kind of inoculated to it now. Uh, it was nice to just kind of get a story like that of 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 Moonlight doing so well, which felt like genuinely kind of like hopeful. Uh, that you know good good things can happen to good and talented people mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah absolutely uh so um what else are some of the other big stories i mean a big one i think certainly in terms of this podcast because we talk about star wars a lot mm-hmm. uh was as you described it in our, our pre-show discussion the fragility of star wars directors um because we have now had t- two instances but three directors uh being fired from their respective Star Wars movies this year in the form of uh, Lord and Miller, who you and I have been long-term fans of and were very excited about being involved in in the directing of the Han Solo movie, being fired. Mm-hmm. And in the case of more recently, and I think to less uh, sadness, <laughs> less opprobrium, mm-hmm. um, Colin Trevorrow being fired from episode nine. Yeah, I think... If you if you want to wind it back a bit more, like there's been six Star Wars projects announced since since Disney bought it, mm-hmm. and four of the directors have been either partly fired or completely fired. Yes. So if you include uh, Gareth Edwards being removed from the post production of of Rogue One, mm-hmm. um, and if you include Josh Trank being removed from the movie he was developing that we're never gonna see. I'd forgotten um, about Trank. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, you don't forget about Trank. Uh, Lord of Miller and now uh, Colin Trevorrow. Um, it seems, that, and like, 
we were super excited because obviously there's never been a better time to be a Star Wars fan. They are really cranking out a lot of stuff and they seem to be very concerned about the quality of said stuff. Mm. Um, and also they are giving chances to exciting directors um, mm. and like Ryan Johnson doing um, episode eight was great. Lord and Miller getting the job um, was, you know, a crazy idea. You know, it would have been something that you wouldn't have thought would have happened, but then Lord and Miller being replaced by Ron Howard and mm. Colin Trevorrow being replaced by J.J. Abrams. It's like, you, you, I get it. Like, Lucasfilm have got a very lucrative property on their hands and they don't want to fuck it up. So they seem to have thought, well, I'll tell you what, we could do something interesting with it. And when it's now starting to look perhaps like that's more of a risk, they bring in people like Ron Howard mm. and J.J. Abrams who are going to, deliver consistently good films but they're not yeah. really going to be that exciting that said and this is like i never thought i'd do it but in the defense of colin trevorrow right <laughs> so obviously i was disappointed when he got the job and i yeah. wasn't disappointed he got the job because he's colin trevorrow i was disappointed he got the job because like there's so many more people that would have been a more exciting appointment right yeah i mean safety guarantee safety was it safety not guaranteed is that what it's called yeah, yeah safety not guaranteed called. that was okay I enjoyed that. Yeah. I didn't watch it and think, give this guy like $200 million in the Star Wars movie. But I was like, okay, whatever. J Jurassic World was just average. I suppose people liked it. A lot of people went to see it. Like, I could understand why he got the job. But like, I was prepared to give him a chance for Star Wars because let's face it, Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars film. And Irving Kirshner's uh, directorial CV is not particularly very good. So, like, that does not qualify you to make a good film, whether you've, like, made two good films or 20 bad ones. Like, you know what I mean? You can pull it out of the bag somewhere. So I was perhaps like, yes, I'm kind of, I would have preferred someone else got the job, but let's just wait and see. But now we know what we're going to get. Do you know what I mean? We're going to yeah. get a solidly enjoyable and the, which is it kind of almost feels like Lucasfilm having this ordeal with like they just can't either get the new directors to get what they want or they're just super sensitive about people not liking it. They're not prepared to take any risks whatsoever. Yeah, I think also I think part of me wonders if it's just that we are because everyone is looking at what Lucasfilm is up to mm -hmm. that the normal machinations of a studio get blown out of all proportion a little bit i mean the the, the lord and miller thing is insane that mm -hmm. they were fired so late into production and that they brought on ron howard to reshoot a lot of it i mean that sort of stuff has happened in the past but it's still a rarity but i think there are lots of instances you can look at where film studios have like fired directors and brought on new pixar do it all the time maybe it's a disney thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> like because pixar fired jan pinkava from uh, Ratatouille and gave it to Brad Bird who had to finish it all up uh, they did the same to Brave Brenda Chapman was removed from the film and, and someone else Mark Andrews I think had to finish it off you know so there's there's definitely uh, a, a history of Hollywood looking studios who either care about the product that they're putting out or just uh, are controlling and don't enjoy working with people who are perhaps too difficult to work with from their perspective removing them and putting in more pliable people mm -hmm. so and, and it just feels like it's more disastrous because it's star wars and everyone has a i mean everyone cares about star wars because it's this huge brand mm -hmm. um in in specific terms i'm i'm not 
particularly cut up about Colin Trevorrow move, losing it. I think um, Jurassic World was a movie that I watched and I thought, ah, oh, that was all right. But then, like, in thinking about it afterwards, I'm like, yeah, it was kind of, like, both implicitly and explicitly misogynistic mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of things about it that are just flat-out dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's as dumb as a bag of hair, that film. It is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think did we have our episode about how stupid that this that film was? Uh, I think we did. We definitely mm. like talked about it because it was at the time like the high had the highest opening weekend. And mm. It was like I guess we have to talk about Jurassic World now, and then it was made. Yeah, I don't think we were we were particularly keen on it. Um, mm. So so that and like my concern was being emboldened by that success may make him unwilling to kind of listen to criticisms about how he could do better mm. and. By all accounts of the, like the leaked responses of various Lucasfilm staffers, that's exactly why Kathleen Kennedy fired him, <laughs> because mm. he was just like, uh, "Yeah, your ideas are not good. Could you try <laughs> better ideas? Mm. Uh, can, you do, and, can you do this again, but less shit, please?" Yeah, I mean that's why they brought on Jack Thorne, the uh, playwright mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, writer of, of of many things, including co-writing the This Is England TV series, mm-hmm. uh, one of the great works of British television of the last ten years. Yeah. Um, I, I, I did meet him during that uh, that that process because I did a little bit of work on the first series of that because mm. he he wrote the first series but not the subsequent ones. Oh, okay. Um, um, so he just did the first one. And um, if I'd have known that he was going to go on to do Star Wars, that'd have been much nicer to him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but, but clearly they were having doubts about the process before they removed him mm-hmm. because they were bringing on a new writer to, yeah, to get him Never a good sign. Ideas. Never a yeah. good sign. And like, I think Jake James did a great job with Force Awakens. It was a very, very fun movie. Maybe he will have whatever the material that Ryan Johnson leaves him with after episode eight will be more, allow it to be a little more inventive maybe, or to take things in a new direction, but we'll have to see. Um, Mm. But the Lord and Miller stuff does feel like an Ant-Man situation to me where no matter how good the film ends up being, it will still have that thing in the back of your mind of thinking, what would the, what would the other version have been? Yeah. Well, there's, which is weird because like, because like Ant, the version of Ant Man we got is is like one of the Marvel movies that I enjoy the most. I think it's mm. a really fun movie. But like, I was so excited about what Edgar Wright would have done with that material that you can't ever really shake that. Mm. And it's it's um, it was interesting that they left it so late. But then there it came out there was all these kind of um, implications for firing them at a certain point because. Uh, due to Directors Guild of America rules, if they stayed on like a day longer, they mm. would not be able, they would still have to be credited as directors. Right. Or some, something like there was something about like they could remove them at that point um, and then they wouldn't be able to have any say with the edit and they wouldn't be able to get credited. So uh, that, because it's, it's like they are, they are still shooting that movie now. Yeah. Like Ron Howard uh, tweeted today that it was Amelia Clark's last day on set, so it's safe to assume they have reshot most of the film. Um, and they replaced Michael Kenneth Williams, didn't they? Because he was going to be he was going to have a role in it. I think he's been replaced by Paul Bettany now. Yeah, but that's that was a scheduling thing, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, because he couldn't. Like they Come were like, we need you back for another month. He was like, dude, I'm I'm doing something else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He was like, I think he's shooting a film in South Africa or something. So they just replaced him with Paul Bettany because you know if you can't get Michael Kenneth Williams, get Paul Bettany. <laughs> they often lose jobs to each other. It's like you know, <laughs> what well, those guys everyone confuses that are now in a film together. Is it uh, Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you should have really seen 
Paul Bettany's screen test for Omar. It was it was quite something. It was amazing. Yeah. He, he was, was so a, close. It was a really close run thing I heard, but uh, just didn't <laughs> quite have the accent. Couldn't do the Baltimore accent. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like chaos. But the, the thing is, is that like there was a big backlash against Kennedy when it all happened, which, you know, I wonder why. Internet, Star mm. Wars, she's a lady. Um, but like, look at her fucking TV. She knows what she's doing. Jesus Christ. And, you know, um, if you're going to go up against her, there's only going to be one winner. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she has been invested with the power to oversee that franchise. Mm-hmm. And, you know... That means that she's going to. She has her own opinion. She is the auteur of that franchise as much as anyone else is at this point. Mm-hmm. So if you can't uh, agree with what she wants to do, then there's going to be problems. <laughs> yeah, and to go full circle and Omar reference it, like you know, if you're going to come at the king, you better not miss. Exactly. So the one of the other big stories of this year, which I don't think we discussed on the show, was uh, Netflix being massively in debt in order mm. to fund their operation which uh doesn't really come as a huge surprise considering how much stuff they put out that you know and how many subscribers they would need to have in order to have the money to pay for all of it but it certainly was kind of like a a shock to see just quite how much they were in debt because it was like several like 700 million dollars or something i think was the the total it was like a huge it was a huge lump sum of money that they are in debt Mm, it was no small change and the interesting thing is that like you look at those figures and you look at how many shows they've got and you look at all the things they're saying they've got in production and all the acquisitions they've made because they're in the acquisitions business as well and you think shit man i mean this is amazing that there's someone investing in like stuff like okja and like all the great tv that they're putting out and the great stand-up they're putting out and you know documentaries don't have much of a, a trouble anymore finding distribution because Netflix mm. and, you know, things like that, are the, you know, those are perfect outlets, but you're like, shit, how sustainable is this? Yeah. Yeah, and that, it is still like a, a massive question because the thing with the Netflix model, and this this is something we talked about on the show before, is like we don't know how many people are watching their shows. Mm-hmm. We know broadly which ones are popular based on, like, Twitter and the, the news coverage about them. We, we know that House of Cards does really well whenever it comes out. Mm-hmm. And we know at least that every comedy nerd in the world watches like Bojack Horseman and mm-hmm. that Orange is the New Black does well. And we, we know like the Emmys likes these shows. But like, there's just the question of like, how do they make money off of this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where where does the money come into it? And then it's kind of built on this vague idea of like, oh, they great added value. They'll get more subscribers. It's just like, but are you generating enough new subscribers by uh putting out new seasons of this stuff uh it's kind of hard to tell mm, maybe there's a lot of money in the richie rich crowd maybe they're that weird yeah remake of that <laughs> film into a tv show that has a production value of like you know a school project yeah which also resulted in one of my favorite articles on i want to say IndieWire. i think mm, it, well, it was pretty good I, I mean i've not seen the show but i've read the article which is means you never have to watch the show <laughs> Yeah, someone just sat and watched every episode of it and kind of reported back, and it does slowly lost their minds over over ten hours of television or something. Yeah, it sounds absolutely hellish, Mm. (laughs) but uh, you know that that fills some niche, Mm -hmm. I guess, (laughs) of people who are very uh, who are very undiscerning or who have very undiscerning children, and they'll just plot them in front of anything. Yeah, or as they're known, children. Yeah, there's there's not that many that will be just kind of like, oh no, mother, I didn't want to watch Richie Rich. Please put on some of that 
foreign mm. stuff. Is the new one car white on or what? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And they're more of an Amazon Prime family. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's it's difficult to see. Like, I mean, it there's they they said they were gonna try and kind of ditch other people's stuff, like having films and other people's TV shows and work more and more to having original content and you, you see that now like at the top of the recommendations for Netflix is all like Netflix original or, or you'll mm-hmm. see the Netflix they're distributing something that's from somewhere else or whatever it's leaning more towards the fact that you know in a year's time it could all everything could be anything on Netflix is made by Netflix or have been bought by Netflix acquired by Netflix but you're thinking gee, are they gonna get there because mm. yeah they, I mean they've got a lot I mean the weird thing is that I remember hearing something like I'm not sure if it's launched in China yet, but like it still might be one of those websites where it's not allowed in China, right? But yeah. like they were going to crack down. Do you remember like maybe about a year and a half ago, they were going to crack down on like VPN proxies. Mm. So like people who were watching, uh, who subscribed to Netflix and paid for Netflix, but they used a VPN masker to watch Netflix from like America or Canada or Mexico. So you'd have access to a much bigger library of, of titles, which was like, you know, Perhaps it wasn't illegal, but it certainly violated your terms and conditions. Um, and it was a good way to kind of like get more of it. But the thing is, you had to pay for it, right? And they were saying that like when they found out, they did they kind of crunched the numbers and they were like, oh shit, we've got 15 million subscribers in, in, in China. It was like some crazy number, like it was in the millions. And they were like, oh shit, we're not in China. So they were like, oh, maybe we should perhaps like think about not cracking down on these VPN <laughs> proxies. And then the rights owners obviously were like, I think you should very much crack down on VPN proxies. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and that with with Netflix, they're moving to all original content that's made by Netflix or distributed solely by Netflix gets around that problem completely because it doesn't matter if in Germany, the people who hold the rights to distributing Spectre are different to the people who hold the rights to distribute Spectre in Australia it's all your stuff you can show it mm. so you know in if if they survive being massively in hock then in 10 years time you will have netflix and you'll turn on and everyone's libraries will be the same because it'll all be made by netflix yeah so there'll just be another network but one that produces <laughs> like vastly more stuff than most networks do mm. uh, i just want them to sort out their theatrical release <laughs> schedules like it feels as if an acclaimed movie being bought by Netflix now feels like the kiss of death mm-hmm. <laughs> because it means, hey, it's going to get seen by people, but also it means that it's going to get absolutely buried in like their Friday dumps of like the five TV shows they're launching that day and the two comedy specials that are going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they do such a bad job of promoting those shows and considering they bought like a couple of movies that are going to be that that under normal circumstances would be considered huge contenders at the Oscars this year or something like Okja which could have maybe wouldn't have been a huge hit but certainly would have been the sort of movie that could have played really well in art houses over the summer mm-hmm. instead kind of debuts on the streaming service and gets seen by a bunch of people the first weekend and then is you know its future from then onwards is you know will this be seen again or will it be disappear into complete obscurity you know that is that I'd like them to do what Amazon does, which is they give it a theatrical window, allow it to do, allow a movie like Manchester by the Sea to find whatever audience it's going to find, and then it goes onto their streaming service forever, and people can find it there. Because at least then you've had like months of people going out to see it in the cinema to actually watch it and spread word of mouth that way, and then Oscars, you know, follow as happened 
this year where Manchester by the Sea won a bunch of awards. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, I'll tell you something that didn't escape my notice while I was away, Ed, is that this summer, the box office um, for the bigger films, let's say, that was a big plate of dick on toast. It absolutely was. And there were, I mean, we, we already mentioned it so far, there was there was the fifth Transformers movie. I lose the, count at this point. The Last Night, I think it was called, which mm-hmm. was, uh, by all accounts, an absolute fiasco. Fiasco? Mm. The fiasco? Oh, darling. Oh, it, I was down in that London for a week, and it's, it's fucked me up. Mm. Fucked me up royal. Um, mm. well, you know, that was a movie that cost, like, $200 million, however these movies cost, and it earned $130 million in the US. Ooh. And and 475 million worldwide uh, mm. uh, outside of America so for like 600 million so it still made more money than it should have in much the tradition of the Transformers franchise but that was like half of what the last one did it was a third of what the one before that did it was like a quarter of what the one before that did it was like this real stark decrease from uh release to release to release mhm uh, and that was just like one of many. He had a fifth Pirates movie as well, which I think most people forget about, which did slightly better, which was like 172 million, but still wasn't quite the performance that those kind of juggernaut franchises expect. War for the Planet of the Apes didn't do particularly well, only made 138 million, um, despite getting really, I'm oh, sorry, 146 million, despite getting really good reviews. Fate of the Furious got 225 million, which is like not the worst, but still not great considering that that franchise is coming off its biggest hit. There was just this general sense, like people always talk about franchise fatigue, mm-hmm. but this year it really did feel like there were a bunch of movies that were intent. Everyone thought was going to be a hit, but which completely failed to uh, materialize the mummy. Another one, 80 million for a big Tom Cruise actioner based on a well-known franchise. Just didn't, didn't make any impact. The dark tower. Phew, that was bad. Yeah. That, that did very, very poorly. Ghost in the Shell, which I don't think anyone expected to do particularly well, but still, uh, that was one that was being seen as a potential success and, and was not. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, again, another one that I don't think anyone expected to do well, but also didn't expect to do quite as badly as it did. Mm. It was just, apart from like Wonder Woman, which was a huge hit, and Guardians of the Galaxy and Spider-Man, uh, and then like lower down something like Dunkirk, which did okay. Uh, it was just like there was just no movies that did really really well on a big scale that you would expect to do well. Mm, is it is it perhaps that with more bigger films coming out later in the year, people are kind of keeping their powder dry until until then, and like it could very home, well be possibly, or is it, could it be the power of Netflix's original programming <laughs> keeping people indoors? <laughs> I do feel as if there is um, a sense, a, a sense that like there's so many options now that people don't go and see movies as much. But that was true like last year. That was true the year before, and the movies did better then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think it genuinely is a combination of a few factors, but I think the the main one, um, at least this is kind of anecdotally, but I think that this is something that I think a lot of people will be familiar with, is like Rotten Tomatoes has become such um, a key decider for a lot of people about whether or not they go and see a movie mm-hmm. like for, for for your average kind of cinema goer if they see that a movie has, has got like is got 50 percent or less on rotten tomatoes they'll probably go uh i'll sit this out mm-hmm. because it's expensive to go and see a movie and and if the 
overwhelming consensus is that a movie isn't good then there's a, a pretty sizable part of the audience of the of the population who will see that and say nah not for me i'll i'll catch it on dvd or i'll i'll, I'll watch some of netflix's fine original programming mm. um i think that that is has been true in like the past but i think it's becoming especially uh marked uh now for for whatever reason mm. it's it, I mean, there wasn't there a studio exec that came out at the like a few weeks ago and said, "Well, the reason for the disastrous summer is Rotten Tomatoes." To which I thought, mm. "Well, he might be kind of perhaps overstating that. Like, make just make better films." I mean, that would be my suggestion. Um, but like, I didn't realize that Rotten Tomatoes really did have this much of an effect because I kind of just don't really put any stock in people who pay that much attention to it. Mm. Well, it's definitely because you see it trumpeted in ads as well now. If a movie gets a high rating on Rotten Tomatoes, it will be mentioned in the trailers. Mm. You know, they'll have it flashing up. Uh, and I do think, I think it's the the Rotten Tomatoes thing is it's kind of like the tail wagging the dog uh, situation because like the problem is not Rotten Tomatoes is out there handing out bad reviews to movies that otherwise would be stonking great hits. It's mm. that the movies are terrible yeah. and people are putting more stock in Rotten Tomatoes as a way of judging how they do their time. And like you say, if the movies were better, they'd do better. You know, Wonder Woman did really, really well because it got really good reviews. Yeah. Um, because I think people saw that and they were like, okay, this is a good DC movie. Mm-hmm. So I guess I should probably give this one a chance after being burned three times previously. Mm. I do I do really think that, that Rotten Tomatoes, and, and, and this is a kind of on a broader trend like the, the fact that individual critics now probably are less powerful than they've ever been in the history of criticism like there's no kind of a roger ebert who you could point to as someone who could make or break a movie but critics on mass definitely seem to have a reasonable amount of power just just purely through aggregation sites like metacritic and rotten tomato so. mm. what a time to be alive uh, you yeah, know what, discourse what, on on film culture is now dead and it's just like in you know two years time it'll just be me you you say a list of films and i'll say whether it's fresh or not <laughs> i'm fairly sure that probably exists there must be a podcast i mean rotten tomatoes probably have their own podcast that does just that i was actually having a conversation with someone at the podcast festival about this where um many many years ago when i worked at the showroom in sheffield someone floated the idea of doing a showroom podcast mm-hmm. uh, and they asked me if i would want to be involved with it and i said well no because wouldn't that just consist of us talking about how good the movies we have on release are going to be? Uh, and it, it does really feel like that would be like a Rotten Tomatoes. It'd just have to be the most kind of like shallow response to this. Like, oh, well, it's got 49%, so I guess almost over half of them don't like it. Mm, yeah. Thrilling yeah. insights. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, are there any other big stories of the uh, of the year that, we haven't covered yet that you, you kind of wanted to sink your well, teeth I suppose into. As a kind of as a kind of counterpoint to the films that did terribly, there was a couple of sleeper hits that did great business and things like uh Hidden Figures, which mm. was kind of the the tail end of last year. I think it came out right at the start of this year. Yeah. Um on general release. Uh, and Get Out, which are both both uh um kind of share something in common. Um, can't quite put my finger on it, but they both did exceedingly well at the box office. And I've not seen Get Out. I do. I have seen Hidden Figures, and but by all accounts, they are both jolly good films. 
Yeah, I loved Get Out. I think it's, it's in my top five for the year so far, and it was a hit, the kind of which you don't usually see, which is that it did better initially than people expected, but then mm-hmm. it just kept going and it ended up with like 175 mil- million in the US alone, which mm-hmm. for a movie that cost, I think, like $2 million yeah. is ridiculous. <laughs> it was like within days of its release, it was one of the most profitable movies of the year, and then it just kept going. I do think, um, you know, maybe that also ties into the lack of success for blockbusters is that people do enjoy novelty. People do enjoy movies that aren't just something they've seen before, but like louder. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Get Out does, you know, as a a social satire horror that does kind of key into, you know, contemporary concerns. It feels like something that people hadn't seen in a long time and it generated discussion. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it really connected that. And and also in, in both cases, you know, you are serving a audience that is often ignored by Hollywood uh, and which every like year there's like a hit that's sudden as a huge hit with like a black audience, you know, even like earlier this year with Girls Trip, which was like a huge, huge success uh, or um wonder woman uh which would like did better than everyone expected i think largely because it attracted a female audience that had for some reason been put off by the by the dc movies uh possibly mm, I, I, I can't think of why that would be mm, possibly the fact they're hateful mm. <laughs> um but like and these... it was funny as well like in after wonder woman's success everyone was like hey this a uh, female-led uh, female-made uh, movie like in the DC universe. It was a real success. What should we do next? I don't know. Three fucking Joker movies. <laughs> yeah, three Joker movies. Maybe with Jared Leto, maybe not. Who knows? We don't know mm. what we're doing. He's, he certainly doesn't know. Yeah, that was the funniest part of it. <laughs> mm. yeah. They were just kind of like, yeah, what do you think about these three Joker movies? They've not spoken to me about them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> great i mean no one would want to speak to you about them but i guess it does kind of it is your business um mm. but yeah like at hollywood every every year there's like some film that does really really well with an audience that is not usually served by the kind of relentless focus on kind of adolescent males uh mm-hmm. adolescent white males specifically uh at, and then suddenly they're like oh my god these people go and see movies we should make more movies for women or more movies for black people and like every couple then they don't and then a couple Mm. of years later another one comes out like hey maybe we should look into this and it's just uh frustrating (laughs) thinking and just kind of like this that guy rolling the boulder up the hill task Mm. um of them just seeming to always be within their grasp of figuring out that maybe you don't need to make movies that only appeal to one audience, uh, that maybe you can make movies for many different niches and they'll all do pretty well, and that you don't have to spend $200 million on a Transformers movie when you could spend $100 million on five movies that appeal to different audiences, and you'll probably make more money. Mm. And, and and like slightly up the scale, up the budgetary scale, should I say, is uh, something like Baby Driver, which cost a bit more than Get Out. Mm. Um, it was something like 30 million, I think that cost, but that yeah. did really well for its budget, given that it was an original idea um, by a director who has had not really any success outside of the partnership with um, Simon Pegg mm. uh, and Nick Frost. Um, uh, and even then, uh, not the hugest of successes. No, exactly. Um, so for that to do well, I was really pleased about. 
Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I I kind of have the same relationship with Baby Driver as I do with Mother, the uh, new mm-hmm. Darren Aronofsky movie, which is that I'm not big on both of them. Well, like Baby Driver, I just don't love, and uh, Mother, I uh, Mother, I absolutely hate. But mm-hmm. I kind of am happy they exist because, like you say, they're original movies that uh, don't look like movies that get made in Hollywood at the moment. Like Mother, in particular, is uh, like unlike any studio movie that's been put out in like the last 10 years uh and the fact it's terrible doesn't detract from the fact that it at least is trying something different and is the sort of thing i would like studios to take more risks on um Mm. uh yeah so like you do want to see and and get out i think is probably like falls into that category as well that it's very unlike what studios usually put out and it's done exceptionally well and that's great Mm. And Mother is really, really, really leaning into its bad reviews. I don't know if you've seen today, but there's uh, the poster going around for the the kind of the second or third week of release, and it's like half of the poster is um, like all the positive reviews, and then half of the the other half of the poster being like this film is a travesty, <laughs> um, which is like you know, well, if you're gonna go with it, you know, if you've made something divisive, you may as well you know lean yeah. into it, as I say. I mean, that was their, that was certainly the strategy for the second weekend that just didn't, didn't pan out. But their, their idea was like, oh, this movie's generating so much discussion that, you know, maybe people will be like, oh, you have to see it for yourself to kind of really figure out if it's, you know, it, who's right. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of people, they just kind of like, well, no, <laughs> I don't want to watch this movie that a lot of people say is terrible. But like that at least is a, a strategy. <laughs> it is, yeah. you know, it, it is an ethos, dude. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's it's very it's interesting times in Hollywood in the in the Chinese sense um, that you know it could be very very difficult for them, uh, and they're all just kind of like flailing around and trying to figure out some what works in uh, a world in which you can no longer rely on giant robots smashing each other up to make money. Mm. Yeah, and uh, you know, for so many years that was that was the go to. Uh, money maker, giant robots, giant dinosaur robots, giant car robots, <laughs> giant flying night robots, smashing each other up. Yeah, not so much these days. Um, but then we'll, it, the, it'll, sorry, go on. Apparently, the line that they would not cross was King Arthur robots, which does make sense considering the King Arthur movie didn't do very well. Yeah, yeah, I um um thought they were showing because I I watched a lot of movies on buses whilst I was away. Um, and, um, sometimes you got very up to date, um, movies that had uh, fuzzy picture quality and Japanese subtitles. <laughs> um, and I'm not entirely sure where they came from, but I'm sure it wasn't legal. And, um, King Arthur came on, on a bus journey that I was on in Columbia. And, um, I was like, oh, this is bad. And then I realized it was that one that came out ages ago with Clive Owen. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Maybe I've been our shot, but it was still terrible. Yeah. And I didn't understand it because it was, we had Chinese subtitles and it was in Spanish. <laughs> Yeah, but there you go. it's historically bad, at least. Mm, Vintage. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've we've uh, talked about the kind of uh, stories of the year uh, up until this point. Uh, so I think what we need to talk about now, because it's a story that is literally just unfolding, uh, mm-hmm. is the scandal coming out about Draft House and Harry Knowles and Devin Farachi. For people who don't know, uh, I'll kind of do a bit of 
backstory on this, the Alamo Draft House is a theatre in Austin, which opened about 20 years ago and has since spawned a, a an entire chain of cinemas across the US. These kind of beloved art house cinemas that are renowned for mainly for their no texting uh, policy uh, and their mm-hmm. no use of phone policy and their support of genre cinema and it's kind of become this big thing that inco- also incorporates the website uh, birth movies death formerly badass digest and also fantastic fest the uh, the film festival uh, and this all started last year i don't know if uh, if you remember matt but um, this time last year there was an election on Mm, yes, I, I believe I heard something about the US president election, I, but I kind of tuned out. It just it kind of it seemed to slip away from the news cycle. Yeah, I mean it's kind of like The Walking Dead. Like you pay attention at the beginning and then you kind mm. of you kind of drift in and out. Tune out, yeah. But uh, as part of that uh, of that campaign, there was one day when a uh, tape was released from uh, of a recording of then presidential candidate Donald Trump on Access Hollywood talking about sexually assaulting women. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, which, as funnily enough, in a twist, did not disqualify him from being the president of the United States, even though it should have. Mm-hmm. And Devin Faraci, who was the editor-in-chief of Birth Movies Death, tweeted on that day, the most telling thing about the Trump tape, he wasn't talking with his best friends, he was boasting to a TV host. Fairly innocuous statement saying, you know, condemning this. Uh, and in line with Faraci's kind of brand up to that point as this kind of feminist film critic in, in in quotation marks you know uh and then someone replied someone called space crone replied to that tweet saying quick question do you remember grabbing me by the pussy and bragging to your friends about it telling them to smell your fingers unsurprisingly mm-hmm. this did disqualify Devin Farachi from being editor-in-chief at Birth Movies Death. He was fired uh, a couple of days later after it became apparent that this was kind of the tip of the iceberg, that there were a lot more cases of him sexually harassing and sexually assaulting women. Uh, He was fired. He went into a 12-step program. People tried to kind of move on from it. Then Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, it emerged that he had been quietly hired back at Birth Movies Death by Tim League, who runs the Alamo Draft House and is one of the co-founders of... Uh, fantastic fest with harry knowles more on him in a moment Mm. and this obviously led to a great deal of condemnation you know this guy had been fired for abhorrent practices and doing and saying terrible things and he had been uh, removed from his job and then it turned out he'd been there for like months and months and months he'd been writing copy for the website and they hadn't announced this it just kind of came up because people realized he'd been writing some of the blurbs for fantastic fest he was then fired again because uh, mm-hmm. he obviously he should have, um, but not before uh, the movie Free Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri ref- withdrew from Fantastic Fest uh, in protest, and Ain't It Cool News rid- uh, withdrew as a sponsor, the site created by Harry Knowles. Uh, and in an interview in which... Oh, Ed, I get, I get the funny feeling that Harry Knowles is going to be an important plot point very shortly. What you think? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of foreshadowing in this in this. <laughs> You're this laying rundown. the breadcrumbs, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in an interview about withdrawing from the festival, Knowles said, and this is very strange. Uh, this is a strange thing to say, justifying why you are drawing, uh, you withdrawing from a festival because of uh, someone involved has been accused of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. There was a rumor about me and an ex-girlfriend that felt ugly. They're a complete fabrication and lie. Weird thing to say. Very strange. I certainly wouldn't believe that. Mm. As uh, I mean, I I I'd, I'd, I'd think that person clearly has either misunderstood the statement they were supposed to make, or they're perhaps laying some groundwork 
for perhaps something that might come in the future. Yeah, it's like opening the door to a police officer and saying, uh, that bloody shirt wasn't mine. You know, mm. it's kind of it's kind of a suspicious thing to say. Uh, it is. And then it paid off. Uh, yesterday, yeah. when uh, an article written by Kate Erbland and Dana Harris for IndieWire reported that Knowles had sexually assaulted a woman called Jasmine Baker, who's been a part of the uh, Austin film scene for a very long time, worked for um, Alamo Draft House for many years. Uh, he had sexually uh, assaulted her decades ago and that Tim League, the aforementioned owner, had essentially hushed it up. You know, she had gone to him and he had said, well, just avoid him. You know, what, what are we to do? Uh, which in turn spurred a lot of female film critics and writers to come forward and share their own interactions with Harry Knowles, talking about him um, sexually assaulting them or sliding into their DMs, as is the colloquial term, and being mm-hmm. very sexually aggressive. And uh, in a, a lot of cases, following a very similar pattern of him starting out with these kind of very genial kind of introductory terms and then suddenly getting very sexually aggressive. The sort of thing that is very, very common amongst kind of, a, of predators, very similar uh, mm-hmm. activity. Um, and this follows on from the and this uh, and Harry Knowles, of course, is still in charge of Ain't It Cool News and still reporting about the festival because the world is terrible. Um, yeah. And this also follows on from sexual harassment scandal involving Cine Family in L.A., the much beloved theatre there, in which the co-founder and executive director Hadrian Belove and VP of the board of directors Shady Alnache resigned after accusations of long term sexual assault and abuse against multiple members of staff. So. Basically, it's a very, very bad week, <laughs> particularly for, I mean, it's bad all the time, but it's an especially bad week, I think, to uh, be a part of the uh, the film cinephile whatever community, because you suddenly realise, oh, there's a lot of really shitty people in it, uh, and that you were painfully unaware of it. Mm, and it, it, it has been particularly hard, given that we've seen this happen in so many other communities, mm. and... It was kind of like, well, I mean, that's terrible, but I mean, at least it's not happening here, I guess. Mm. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit, it's not only happening, but it's been happening for a long time. And the people that you kind of trusted to preserve the community, to be safe for everybody, are kind of involved. Yeah. And or people like Harry Knowles, you always disliked because he's a terrible writer. Yeah, dreadful. uh, And to, by all accounts, is like just a real dickhead. (laughs) To like mm. most people who aren't uh, involved in the film industry and who can kind of grant him access or whatever, it basically that it turns out he's like far far worse a person allegedly, but come on, than um, than you had been kind of led to believe. Uh, and the mm. same with Devin Farachi, who uh, I never particularly liked, mainly because there were multiple instances of him telling people on Twitter to go kill themselves. Wow. Um, whenever he would kind of get into arguments with people and. Um, there's like, there's an argument to be made, or there's an argument that some people make saying like, oh, you know, how people are online isn't who they are in real life. They can be more combative, you know, on Twitter, you only have 140 characters. So sometimes you'll be a bit more glib. And like, there's a, there's an argument to that, like you may be a bit more snarky in real life, but there's a difference between that and then like just telling someone to go kill themselves or telling Mm. your follow or sicking your followers on someone who disagrees with you. Like that's just a sign of a pathology that someone has uh, that runs a, a kind of a lot deeper. Uh, and while mm. it may not be surprising that Farachi and Knowles turn out to be like worse people than even people who didn't like them suspected, it's still really horrible 
to discover that there's like like you say that within a community that uh, you kind of feel like is probably fine-ish. <laughs> Turns out it's really not, uh, and that mm. and that sudden and, and then you find out like oh all of these women writers and filmmakers who've been part of this community you just realize oh yeah no they have they all have a dozen stories at least about creeps in the kind of in quote unquote film twitter or the the kind of the film going community yeah yeah it's been rough and personally i feel like the announcement that they're going to do a roman plansky retrospective has you know just sullied it a bit more mm. Is that yeah. true? That no, that's not okay. true. <laughs> but that would that would be something that like it, this week couldn't get any worse for them, mm. <laughs> and that would just be the the ultimate end game. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, I guess like for me, it already just kind of like reflects like the problem of any time you have like a space that is predominantly male. <laughs> like mm. it, def- it reeks, it reeks of the boys' club kind of privileged access only um kind of thing that you could get away with um but and like it's it's something that like i've never felt in circles that it's particularly like that mm. but i guess i guess the higher up you go the worse it gets yeah i mean i certainly know like cuz i work in the games industry and that's a big problem as well is like even though the industry is more diverse than it was when I started. It's certainly more diverse in America than it was in the UK, but that's that's purely because in the UK, like the population is like eighty five percent white. <laughs> so through pure luck, it would have to be somewhat more diverse. Um, mm-hmm. But like I'm painfully aware a lot of the time when I'm in meetings that literally there will be like a woman in the room, or most of the time not. Most of the time, it's just mm-hmm. a group a, a group of men sitting around, and when you have that, and that is something that happens in in the kind of the film community as well, there is a unwillingness to rock the boat about when someone says or does something that you feel is suspect, uh, mm. and also there is because of that, there's also an unwillingness, not an unwillingness, a fear on the part of of women to kind of come forward and say hey this guy is like a massive creep can we please <laughs> excommunicate him because there is the genuine and real fear that they will be disbelieved or they will be um met with kind of people saying yeah but where's the where's the proof which is mm-hmm. the, the fucking worst response to someone saying hey this guy has been sexually harassing me like you you are not owed proof <laughs> you are someone is coming to you and reaching out you should listen like that should be mm-hmm. your response it should not be uh-huh have you got screenshots so that mm. i can so that i can fully believe you yeah it's it's super depressing mm. that but it also explains a lot of why film circles are such a sausage fest yeah. that like they are impenetrable to, like they're, they're not accessible to everybody and you know there's a reason for that because when you do get access not always but like there's you know that's what you're kind of faced with mm. and or that's what you could be faced with and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that like you know it stays a sausage fest mm. and you know then you have this whole thing that we go on about all the time is that like well the diversity in voices is is not huge well i wonder why mm. Yeah, and then I mean? uh, and then and then you kind of get the thing of like, oh well, you know, the the women and people of color will go off and create their own spaces to kind of exist in, but that doesn't solve the problem that you have this space that is 
in some way kind of corrupt and toxic uh, mm. and that you kind of need to try and push back against. Uh, yeah. And, like, there's no real way to kind of do that. Certainly, like, on an individual list, like, you can try and promote women's voices. You can kind of draw attention. Like, like I, last year, like, did the, the 52 films by women thing where you just kind of draw attention to the fact of that there are movies directed by women. You try and point people to them. Um, so you can try and, like, raise women up unless you're able to kind of like call out people in positions of power for being creeps, then there's not much you can do to kind of cleanse the community. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe violence might be the only language these people understand, <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that we've kind of uh, ended up talking about this on the podcast because you and I have been having a lot of discussions um, about the future of Shot Reverse Shot. Mm. Um, and it's a show that we very much enjoy doing. And, you know, people who listen regularly know that, you know, we're cool. Like, you know, we talk about this kind of stuff. But, like... We're woke AF. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, like, it does... It You know, it's not lost on us that we are two white dudes mm. talking on the internet. So something that we've talked about, um, and you you know, our dozens of listeners will start to enjoy um, going forward is as this year moves on and into next year, you're going to be hearing a much wider, more diverse series of voices, not just our dulcet tones. Though they are very dulcet. Uh, yeah, like, they are. Like, like you say, I mean, like over the last nine months and, and starting like towards the end of last year when um, we kind of experimented with different things to do with this show while you're away uh we've had more people on we've had kaylee donaldson um who, who now writes for pajiba and is uh is a great writer um and who was also written about the devon farachi thing uh in the last week i think and she did wrote, wrote a really great article for pajiba mm. about it oh you know we, we've had more uh people kind of come in and, and that's something we want to keep doing we want to try and keep having guests come on to talk about this so that we get more perspective so it's not just you and i batting back our thoughts on like netflix and star wars <laughs> mm. all the time yeah and it's 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 i mean we said this when we we chatted about it when you were over like you know you and i you know the whole you know diversity and in in what we see and and who we hear from bugs the living shit out of us mm. but it's slightly disingenuous if it's just us talking about it yeah. so we may as well use our pretty small platform um to kind of um perhaps kind of broaden our appeal and, and broaden what we're saying yeah so so that's um, something we're gonna try to do we're gonna try and have more guests on more regularly obviously the way that we do this show it means like there's a little bit of scheduling involved so we'll try it so i'm sure that it'll be take a while for us to kind of work the kinks out of it but uh we'll we'll try and get as many kind of new voices in as we can mm, absolutely um and if you are a new voice who is listening um get in touch unless you're an old voice in which case we're not interested <laughs> no we'll take yeah. old voices yeah okay well, depend, how old like kind of creepy old or like... um let's let's say mid 60s yeah no hands mole men no, absolutely not. A rare Simpsons reference from yeah. You, I, I, I had this, I had this like, like you know, discussion the other day. I've seen like twenty episodes of The Simpsons, and I really, really like. It's only some references I can get, and most references uh, just fly straight over my head. Which was most made it very strange for you when you came to the pub quiz in Sheffield that we all went to, where it was you, me, and nine of my Simpson obsessed friends. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, I had no idea what they were talking about half the time. 
Uh, I just kind of gazed into the distance and like uh, just concentrated on the pub quiz, which is what you should be doing. Yes, uh, if you're in a pub quiz, because um, that you know that shit's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to end the show as we do every week with shot reverse shot recommends, in which we point out a piece of pop culture that uh, we've enjoyed and that other people might be interested in as well. Matt, take us away. What have you been enjoying uh, in pop culture recently? Well, since I've been back, um, I've been like so overwhelmed with trying to catch up with everything that I've kind of just mainly not watched any films or television at all because I'm just too scared. I might just write off 2017 and not watch anything <laughs> and just start afresh on January the 1st. But one thing I have watched, um, which uh, might surprise viewers, was on Netflix uh, and is a Netflix original programming, a docu-series called The Keepers, Mm. uh, which falls very much in line with um, previous Netflix hit, Making a Murderer, um, a kind of show which like kind of frames itself as a whodunit, um, kind of picking up a cold case of a 1969 murder of a nun who um, was uh, killed, went missing, and then body kind of recovered about a month later. Um, Mysterious circumstances, nothing was done, kind of uh, case went cold, moved on. You know, 30 years down the line, 40 years down the line, um, some ex-students of the the school that where the nun worked pick up the case and start to kind of ask questions. And after a while, it kind of stops being a straight-up murder investigation and a scathing indictment of the Catholic Church's cover-up of um, historical sexual abuse. Um as you can understand, it is a laugh riot. Um, but it, I, on a serious note, it is a thoroughly, thoroughly compelling show, um, filmed um, kind of in, like incredibly. Um, it kind of draws you in in the sense that uh, they present a lot of the reconstructed stuff really, really well, and it kind of a lot of the 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 kind of uh, visual cues uh, rotate and rotate and rotate, and you kind of keep seeing them, and you don't fully know what they mean yet. And then as more information comes in. You kind of get this bigger picture of of this kind of really strange case which lifted a lid on a whole lot of stuff. This was before the Spotlight investigations mm. um, that you might know of from the film Spotlight um, or of the, the kind of investigative journalist team that kind of did that stuff. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating show. Uh, it's seven parts and I would recommend it um heartily it's not for the faint-hearted it is a bit grueling um but as a palate cleanser um i would recommend another another netflix original um called american vandal Mm. which is about a criminal case which is not real it's a mockumentary uh about a high school student who spray painted 27 dicks on his teacher's cars (laughs) and it is presented in the exact same style as a serious hard-hitting investigation like The Keepers. Um, I'd give it a week between watching the two shows, but if you want to watch a incredibly uh, powerful piece of television, then The Keepers is fantastic. And then if you want to watch a spot-on structural parody <laughs> of an incredible piece of television, American Vandal is the, uh, uh, is the chaser. Uh, yeah, I've watched... I haven't watched all of American Vandal, but I have watched a few, an episode or two of it, and I watched all of the Keepers, and they're both. I can second both recommendations heartily. It's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they're both very different, uh, but yeah, the the Keepers in particular, I think, is a really good use of the series format for a documentary because 
you could easily imagine that story being told as a feature and ryan white who made it has, has previously just directed features but mm-hmm. the added time and scope really does uh you know add add real texture to it and does allow you to kind of understand and follow the journeys of the victims more fully uh and, mm-hmm. and that really adds up to something immensely powerful particularly by the the, the final episode yeah yeah, I'm waiting for a powerful payoff to the dick painting in American Vandal. I'll wait to see where that goes. What have you got this week, Ed, to recommend? Uh, I'm going to recommend a movie that I watched on Netflix. Um, <laughs> Fucking hell. We are not being paid by Netflix at all. It's not a Netflix original. I'll say that oh, okay, that's If fair. this is a, okay. a, a movie that originated elsewhere. Uh, it's a movie called Pariah, directed by Dee Reese. Uh, Pariah is a movie that came out in 2011 and is a movie about a young... A black lesbian teenager who's growing up in Brooklyn and who is trying to who basically the whole movie is about her trying to navigate the different spheres of her life she has her friends who she goes out clubbing with and who she's kind of openly gay around she has her parents who don't know but have suspicions um she kind of like exists in school in this in-between zone where some people kind of know some people don't uh and it's just a really beautifully realized movie it's beautiful to look at as well it's shot by bradford young who uh, is is one of the best cinematographers working uh, at the moment he's someone who's um working i think on the han solo movie at the moment but he also shot arrival last year he shot a lot of really great movies um but uh, it's a really is a, it's a really kind of sweet and heartbreak at times heartbreaking but mainly just kind of bittersweet movie about you know, someone coming into their own as a sexual being, and the 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 problems that emerge from that, from when your when your sexuality is something that is at odds with your family, what they want for you, with or or what the broader community may kind of respond to it. Uh, and I thought it was just a hugely hugely touching piece of work, very charismatic as well. The entire cast are, are really really wonderful, and. I watched it partly because it's a movie that's been on my radar for a really long time, and also because you know, as like we're talking about, trying to watch more movies by women, so that that was kind of one of the reasons for it. But also because D. Rees is directing a movie called Mudbound, which was a huge hit at Sundance this year, and uh, is being touted as a potential awards contender. Although, as we previously mentioned, it is it is uh, it was bought by Netflix, so <laughs> it's probably not going to have any traction at all. It will disappear into the ether, which is a dreadful shame. But um, Pariah is a is a fantastic piece of work and uh, a movie I think more people should see. It seems, it seems to be one of those movies that everyone on film Twitter has seen, but maybe not more people. So it's, it's something that's absolutely worth seeking out. Mm, I'll add it to the fucking gargantuan stack of shit I've got to watch. Yeah, you've, you've got to catch up on all of 2017 and then start working backwards. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe, write us a review, uh, if, uh, tell your friends about it. You know, you know, if you've enjoyed this show and you've listened to a bunch of episodes, you know, tell your friends who would like us. Uh, that's how we get new listeners, and also tell them to write reviews as well. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> it's weird to do it that way around. <laughs>